Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, last week, we've, you, have, you might have last week's sheet if you don't, it's okay. Uh, I left you kind of with a question. Uh, does anybody remember what the question was? Because I remember asking you a question and said, we'll talk about it next week. <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah, and I'm the worst. Well, we were talking about Jacob's well and living water being put together. And then this, and the spirit, all right? So, so I make an argument here, and I'll make it again today, that Jacob's well, this is the bottom of the front, is a precise geographic location. John's very careful to tell us. Now, this is not just any well, but it's Jacob's well. And why would you do that in like literature? So that you think about all the things that happened there before, right? So bring to your mind, oh yeah, Jacob's well, what happened? Well, Jacob, obviously, with uh, who? Who do you meet at the well? What? That was Isaac and Rebecca, I love that. Yes, but Isaac and Rebecca at the same well, that's right. Abraham servant, so yeah. So stories about, and they're all, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that. Uh, and Jesus here asking for physical water. I mean, he's thirsty, right? Uh, and I know I asked you that question. Does that bother you that Jesus is so physical and needy, you know, in a bodily sense? Uh, it, it shouldn't. <laughs> True man, right? Um, of course, then you have like... Uh, the temptation by the devil, you know, to make the stones into bread or to bring water from the rock, like, like with Moses. And it's like, no, but I don't have to do that. I can fast for 40 days, which anybody try to fast for 24 hours in here? Like maybe for a medical procedure, you might have to do eight or 12, but 24, 18. Yeah. If you, if you try to, once you get over 24, things start to get a little weird. Yeah. Um, not necessarily fluids, right? You still have fluids, but, um, but no food. And uh, it actually is good for your brain. Your brain switches into a, a fat-burning mode instead of carbo. That takes a couple, couple days. And you can actually put yourself into that kind of um, physical state where you're burning more fat than carbohydrates by restricting your diet. So basically going on a near-starvation diet with low-carb, which is what people call ketogenic. Yeah. After, after a certain period of time, you don't feel hungry. No, that's true, right, because your brain is switched. And it, you can naturally produce energy. Um, it's a different kind of energy. It's a, it's a calorie, but it comes from, they're called ketones. And they, they're just as effective for your body, um, but they actually do weird things for your brain. I only know about this because it helps with seizures. So that's one of the ways to treat seizure disorders is with a, a very calculated starvation diet, which doesn't sound so pleasant, uh, but Caesars aren't either, so, right? Okay, uh, I don't know why we're talking about that. Physical water, he needs physical water. Always remember John 20, 31. So everything in the, in the gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, all right? So that's why these things are recorded for you. Living water is not only the teaching of Jesus, but the water through which the spirit, um, or the source, gives eternal life, all right? So that, remember we're talking, we've got all these concurrent themes happening in John chapters 1 through 4 at least. Um, actually, living water is going to continue through at least to chapter 7. Um, but right now, we're talking water, spirit, and marriage. Remember, wedding at Cana? Okay. Uh, here, we have marriage talk. We're at Jacob's well, and she, he asks about her husband, you know, or there's the husband talk. All right, so there's maybe two waters are understood here. One that gives life and one that gives eternal life. So you see what Jesus is doing. So, okay. All of you were here last week, so that's why we didn't go back and reread. Hopefully you remember. But he asked for physical water, but then he transitions her into talking about living water. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
uh, one that satisfies thirst, the other that satisfies once and for all thirst, right? And uh, you probably heard a sermon like on Good Friday on the seven words, of Je- last words of Jesus, and one of them is I thirst. And that um, I know I've preached on it probably once or twice. And the um, you know what always comes to mind is is that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah. So what is he hung? What is he thirsty for? I mean, they give him sour wine to fulfill the prophet, of course, but he's, he's thirst for your salvation, for your righteousness. What percentage of the body is made up of water? No, sixty, seventy percent, right? Yeah, yeah. Of course, I, I made my uh, niece uncomfortable because I also explained to her how much of her body is made up of bacteria. <laughs> Including things like your skin. If you have like extremely dry skin, you probably don't have the right the biome microbiome on your skin to keep it healthy to help what um, not only keep it hydrated but also yeah to keep the dead to take the dead skin off. The, the bacteria do that. The little bi- little bugs living on your skin and in your gut. Uh, you get a bug in your brain. It doesn't go so well. Um, people die of those things. Anyway. Uh, thus, the woman at the well is a symbol, is uh, a symbol in early Christian iconography of baptism. Now, have you ever seen that pictured, Jesus with the woman at the well, and then the water, and that being a baptism picture? They get away. The Christian art gets away from it pretty quick, but it, but in the first couple of centuries, they saw that as they saw this as a baptism text, and they pictured it that way. So, like, if you had, like, uh, what do they call it, a triptych, where you have multiple images all teaching the same thing, you know, they would have, obviously, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, um, but they would have, uh, this would be one of the pictures they'd show as well. So that's something. Like in a baptistry, you, you know that, right, that um, it was Lutherans who said, let's baptize in church, in the church proper, and actually put the font usually right in the middle, at the, at the entrance or at the nave or even in the dead center in the congregation because we inherited churches where the baptisms would happen privately and off in a separate little room called a baptistry. I've been a Roman church they still not, not, not since Vatican II so not since the 60s so new, not new Roman churches but um, previous to 1960 they almost always just baptize off into a, like a side ante room. It might open up into the main sanctuary but it'd be off to the side. And uh, that's because in the Roman church, they, they actually the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, had a lot of things that we don't care for. But the thing that they really did emphasize and what started it all was a renewal of baptism in the Roman church and the emphasis on baptism in a very positive way, in the way that, that we had done 440 years before then. All right. So you'll find uh, Roman churches do a lot more with water and baptism now and talk about baptism than, than they did um, say 70 or 80 years ago. All right. Note too that the life of the spirit given and received in baptism is a life lived. And uh, that's going to be one of the themes in the sermon today, actually. Um, Remember that it was a water welling up to eternal life. What verse was that? John chapter 4 verse. There was that word. 14. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain springing up into everlasting life, welling up or gushing, right? And that, that idea of the water, it's, that, that's the idea with living water, right? Is that um, it keeps coming. It, it's not dead. It keeps, it's moving, and, uh, yeah. which is helpful. We talked about that with baptism, right? It's like those springs or rivers where like the... Rivers around it dry up during the drought, but it's still there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, like randomly, because a spring-fed lake. So unless the spring dries up, there's going to be a lake there. <laughs> you can't. You don't have to really do much to make sure there's a lake there. Uh, it does, and it's because it's not like artificial. It's not created by a dam or something like that, where the water level will change based off of the river water. Gushing water within the baptized is an image of the life of Christ possessed and lived by those given and guided by Christ's spirit are his disciples. So what I'm trying to express here is that, is that this living water given to you in baptism, that's Jesus, um, has ongoing effect. It's not, baptism is not a once and done kind of thing. 
and you'll get this from um, not active Christians or non-Christians where they'll, they'll say, well, you know, I want my kid baptized and I'll just ask why. I'm not trying to like be a jerk or something. Just like, you know, what do you confess about baptism? Because if they, they may have that confession that it's like, um, I don't know what you want to call it, a magic formula or a, or a secret rite that gives some benefit that's once and done. And so in, in one sense, they're right. When you're baptized, salvation is yours. It's done. But in another sense, they're wrong in that it does actually have an ongoing effect that continually is drawing you back to Christ, back to his word, uh, keeps you with Christ by the work of the Spirit working through that baptism. So that's the thing that's like, well, confirmation would be a good example of this, which is a confirmation of your baptism. And then in theory, the idea is to say that that's going to draw you further in to the life of the church, not actually exclude you from the life of the church. And if that's not happening, it may be that it's not being uh, confessed properly, or, or there may be just some confusion really as to what the life of the baptized is. And it's not less learning and less Jesus, it's more. So I try to suggest to those who are confirmed that they, it actually, well, I do this with my own children anyway, as you can see, <laughs> that you actually ramp up into a fuller life into the church, even more. Not only at the altar, but, but in your study and your prayer. So that's the idea. Of course, the revealed word is also included in these living waters. So it's not just Jesus revealed in baptism, but it's also the word. Jesus is the true Torah law. His story is the story. All right. So his discourse, I know this is all kind of heady talk, but we'll, we'll try to break it down. His discourses refer to his person and work uh, of who he is and what he does. Thus, Jesus is showing the Samaritan woman that he is the water promised in the scriptures. Okay. So again, that's why Jacob's well is mentioned. That's why there's allusions to the words of the prophets talking about the giving of water and water coming out of the temple, which we'll talk about today. This is, and, and she catches on to it. This Samaritan woman is not an unfaithful woman, maybe in terms of marriage, <laughs> which we can talk about, but, but in terms of her knowledge of God's word, she, she catches on right away to what he's talking about. He doesn't have to, it'd be kind of like if I said, I did this with a friend this morning, um, I just gave him a, a, just a short couple words. I said, uh, you know, these are people of the land. And they knew how to follow up that. He knew exactly what to say to that. I didn't have to say anything else. I didn't have to say what movie I was quoting, you know, what the scene was like. Instantly, he's drawn to, my, drawn to his mind was Gene Wilder with, I can't remember the other guy, in, in Blazing Saddles. And you know the next part of the line? These, people, these are people of the land. You know, morons. really funny yeah so that's what jesus is doing by way of analogy uh he's just giving out a few words what would be another one uh may the i mean in that that's like it's so enculturated you know may the force be with you i mean that's just like may that like we say may that all the time in church but but in like common tongue that's it you see how that works and now you're thinking Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, you're thinking lightsabers, you're thinking Death Star blowing up. I don't know what all is coming to mind, okay? So that's what's happening. Jacob's well, living water, ooh. She's got synapses firing, ideas coming to mind. Um, as we should too, although, I'm sorry, I got blur on, on here. Um, or we would have more of those um, and this is a little bit of an even personal indictment. If we knew the scriptures better, we would catch more references to what Jesus is doing. Because there's, it's like a, somebody described it this way for me this week. Um, it's like an onion. There's just layers on layers on layers. You just keep peeling back layers and there's more, there's more. Or actually, uh, maybe more like uh, an artichoke. You know? Because what's the best part? It's the heart, right? The, the outside leaves are actually, you know, there's a little bit of flesh on there that's tasty. Um, but it's not until you get to the heart. And that the heart is Jesus. All right. Regarding the well at Jacob, consider also Genesis 2, 6 to 7. Right? And you remember that? That's about the, in the Garden of Eden, what's, what's there? Yeah, well, 
Mm, now you're jumping to Revelation. What's in Genesis? Yeah, there's the four rivers, but that's not six to seven. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Have you ever thought about that? So before the flood, what was what was it like? Or maybe even before the fall into sin, depending on where you want to, how you want to understand this. Before there was rain, what? that the whole face of the earth was watered. Is there anywhere like this where it's just misty? The Northwest? Yeah, Northwest. Like Vancouver is basically, it's not a tropical rainforest, but it's a rain, it's basically a rainforest. It's yeah. just, because yeah. it's surrounded by water, it's just wet. And, and things are green. They're evergreen, right? So, um, so that, maybe that's also what's going on here. You're talking about living water that waters the whole face of the earth. That's, that's water for everyone, not just that. So Jesus does this often. He's like, you know, he takes the little thing or the very located thing of like Jacob's well and then says this is going to go and it's for everyone and it's to the ends of the earth, you know, and all nations will bow before him. Those kind of ideas. So taking a very, really strange little group of people <laughs> called the Jews and bringing salvation for the entire world through them. You know. Like a, like a mustard seed turns into a tree. He uses that picture, right? Yeah. The gift of God, which is in verse, back in chapter 3, if you had known, right? Oh, shoot, now I'm in Genesis. Not Genesis chapter 3. I know what that is. John 3. Yeah, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That God has given his only son. Remember? That's a gift, gift language. The gift of God is Jesus. Does this, oh, here's my question. Does the Samaritan woman comprehend this? And I argue no. Remember that last week? She's like Nicodemus. She's got some parts of it, of the puzzle, if you like. So synapses firing, visions happening. Is she putting it all together? Not in the way that I do in the, in the study. Because in the study, right, look at what I say. Her faith is incomplete, lacking the revelation of the new categories and the synergy are being brought together of the Old Testament testimony with the crucifixion of Jesus. Right? So uh, we'll see this again when we get to, say, John chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel, where he's saying all sorts of things that just really devastate the disciples. They're like, who can, who can even understand these things? Like, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood? And they're like, what? I mean, it's, for us, we look and like, oh, we get it, Right? You know, Old Testament picture, sacrifice fulfilled in the Lord's Supper for us. It's all there. It's, it's easy, right? And they're just like, what is he talking about? Because what have they not yet seen and heard and received? Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit, Christ's death, right? Namely, where blood and water flow from his side, right? They haven't actually heard the words of institution, right, from on Monday, Thursday. They don't, have the, they don't have all the pieces yet to fully comprehend. That doesn't mean it's not beneficial to them. But he's laying the groundwork, right? And um, we do this, actually, with children, you know? It, uh, but it happens on its own because kids are naturally curious. So I know Marla posted on Facebook. Did you see that comment? Yeah. Because I wasn't like, I, I don't know. I guess it was just intuitive. Uh, one of her, her grandchildren was at the rail and, and asked loudly, I think, I think Mike was the elder, asked loudly, What's in that? Pointing to the chalice. So I finished the table, and then I just, I guess mom was trying to hush her, hush him. I don't know. It was kind of just in the moment thing, but she, she recalled it for me that uh, I just said it's, it's, it's wine, and it's the blood of Jesus. So, you know, they ask, the, they ask the question, you tell them. Right. Just, is it that hard? <laughs> and they, maybe at some point they're going to say, well, how's wine, blood, and da 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 da. And then we have more questions. and we have more conversation. All right, so look at 1 John 4, 7. Flip to that. Four, seven. Mm-hmm. 1 John 4, 7. Which I argue, um, I've argued for you before, that 1 John in particular is a sermon on the Gospel of John. 
or at least on part of the Gospel of John. All right. Uh, four to, uh, what did I say, to 12. Somebody want to read that? Let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested love of God toward us, because that God sent us only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. All right. I kind of wish that we hadn't used the Latin turn the Latin into an English word, propitiation, because you're like, oh my goodness. Because the Greek is so much easier. It's elasmus. Elasmus. It's easier to pronounce. You're also just like, what, what does it mean? <laughs> it's just as confusing. Um, a pro, pro is forward, right? Or towards. Pro, to pitiate is to make a, amends or to appease. Okay? So it's, it's an appeasing forward or for you. So, so Jesus is set for, he appeases what of God for you? Wrath. Yeah, God's wrath, the judgment of sin for you. So that, I know, it's just this highly technical term, it's theological, and uh, there isn't just a one-for-one, like, easy word we could throw in its place. So they leave the big churchy Latin word in English. And we, ha- we, we have a duty then to define it. That's every time it comes up. Yeah, that's two words, so it's a little bit better, right? Still not as simple to say as elasmus. But uh, yeah, an atoning. But see, even then, atoning. Like what? What does that mean? What does it mean to make atonement? Payment. Payment? Yeah, I mean, atonement is actually, uh, that's a technical term too. It's, at least in the Bible's understanding, it's a blood covering. Yeah. So a propitiation is, a, a, is an appeasing of God through a blood covering. So you're covered in blood. The sacrifice. The blood of the sacrifice. That's all wrapped up in that little word. Isn't that something? Now notice, um, you know, what, what does John do? He says, well, th- this is always a problem. Well, you just need to love me. Or, um, you know, we should love one another. And every, every Christian church says this. Even the, the most liberal Christian church says that, that the center of the Christian faith is love. But what's the problem? What kind of love? Yeah, what kind of love? What is love? And, and we would just, you know, if you wanted to answer very quickly, or answer with a question, which is always fun, right? Uh, who is love? Like, well, God is love. Well, who is God? And John's very careful to tell you, right? The love of God is manif- was manifested toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live and might not in the sense of maybe we talked about that right grammatically you will yeah you will live through him or you do live through him in this is love not that we loved god so this is who's the sacrifice jesus is the sacrifice for you right and that undermines all natural religion because we think everything is about our sacrifice for god And John says, nope, you've not loved God. Your sacrifices are not acceptable to God. Blood of bulls and goats and da-da-da, hear the psalm. But that he he loved you, that he made sacrifice for you and sent his son to be the blood covering, if you like, atoning sacrifice for your sins. And then notice what John does. He says, beloved, if God has so loved us, if, maybe, if, (laughs) I don't know if I would translate it that way, how might you translate it? Just to be since clear in English. But since God has loved us, as God has loved us. It's not like maybe he loved us this way. No, he has. Uh, <laughs> we also ought to love one another. That's how mine translates it. Um, that's because the uh, tense is, hmm, actually, huh, to love. It's present active infinitive. What? 
Why did they translate it ought to? Well, because there's this awful auto, okay, that we owe love to one another. But it's not a, that we ought to love one another in a sense of like you should or you, you that, that's what you, because that's, it's not that. It's more, uh, hmm, because he's loved us, then we love one another. It's, it's, as Jesus would describe it, or you'll hear in the sermon, it's fruit, it's fruit language. So if you don't love one another, what's the problem? What are you lacking? That don't love God mm, that's true also, but not flip it around. That you don't actually believe that he loves you. Yeah, yeah. So this is why everything, uh, Jesus orders everything in the church um, around receiving his love, namely his forgiveness. Everything we do, I don't know if you've, I mean, you pay attention. Everything is ordered towards being forgiven. Because that, that, that's the fruit of his cross. That's what he did for you on the cross. Everything is oriented around the cross. It doesn't, and it doesn't matter. I mean, divine service is obvious. So when we have the Lord's Supper, it's obvious there, I think. Um, but even, even today, with, with the, uh, like a prayer service like Matins, it's still oriented towards hearing that your sins are forgiven, even though we don't do the whole rite of confession absolution or, you know, uh, have the sacrament. But at least that's the preaching of, of, of the prayer services. All right. And, uh, yeah, and no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... Oh, there's that if language again. Is that really a fair translation? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a aeon conjunction. I think that's a fair translation. Uh, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has perfected, been perfected in us. So... What the challenge there is, is doing exactly what Jesus does with the woman at the well, which is to say, I mean, he, he's drilling down on her for her confession of faith. Who does she say he is? Which is essential, right? I mean, that, and that's everything that we do, that I do, at least in like catechesis or in Bible study. It's always about who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? But not just who is Jesus in an abstract or a like attribute kind of way. But who is Jesus for you? You know, how have how have you received Jesus? Have you received him, you know, as your teacher, uh, as an instructor, which he is, um, but really drill down to the point where he is the source of living waters. He's he's the source of life, and not just life now, but life eternal. Yeah. This would be a good passage to use. Uh, speaking to Jehovah's They will not read. I, they will not read First John with you, and they won't read the uh, first chapter of John. Nor will Mormons, by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses especially, because when they translate John chapter one, Gospel of John chapter one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God, and you're like, okay, let's talk. Then you just get in the weeds as far as text. Yeah. Oh, Tanzania, so tasty. All right. You got the new sheet? We should probably read that just to refresh us the, the context here again. So John chapter 4, 16. Huh. So no, 15. The woman said to her, Sir, said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So what does she think? He's talking about this, this living water and the water in Jacob's well are the same thing. Right? But that's, is that what he's doing? No, he's doing a contrast. This water, you have to keep coming and drawing all the time. Living water is yours forever. All right. 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, good job. So, <laughs> there's so much going on here, right? And it doesn't it seem like, um, you ever had those, it's almost like a sparring match, do you, I don't know, where things are moving really quickly. There's that, that, that dynamic of like you're moving from one thing to the next and everything's happening so fast and you just, you know, if you're good at it, you're in flow state and you're just moving from one thing to the next and you're not all bogged down. Um, if you're not good at it, you're like, whoa, 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 slow down, hold on. Like, what did you just do? Don't do, let me, let's figure that out before we go on to this thing, right? And that, unfortunately, that's prob- I probably treat, <laughs> that's probably how you feel in Bible class. It's like, whoa, hold on, pastor. Explain what you just said before you go on to the next thing, right? And it seems Jesus is doing that with the woman. But I'm going to argue that she's, he's not, and she's right with him. Um, again, they're at the well. She wants water. It's Jacob's well. And so in 4.16, 4, 6, uh, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And who's her husband now? Who's the husband that she needs? Remember all the marriage pictures that we've been getting like in, in chapter 3. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Jesus is. So you see how he's, he's drilling down on her to say, are you with me? Do you, are you making all the connections yet with this water and water being connected to um, marriage? Because it's Jacob's well. Yeah, we're at Jacob's well. And uh, some commentators actually say, um, when, when she responds, I have no husband, that she's also like initiating a courtship there. I'm not so sure that's true. Um, and based off what Jesus says, it's definitely not true. Jesus is connecting living water, the well, with the marriage's image with husband. It's not a new theme. So I have to make the case here for you. We've already been getting this, right? Because John the Baptist, in chapter 3, we studied that, talks about the bridegroom, uses the bridegroom language and his work of salvation as a spiritual marriage. That's in 329. Just to refresh, Go if you need to flip back quick, you can. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ and I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom. Who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So there, I mean, John the Baptist, back just a few verses ago, just takes us weeks to, we have to skip back a few weeks of study, but John just referred to him as the bridegroom. So that's the context uh, that John is giving us in the gospel. And of course, the wedding at Canaan, we talked at length about, you know, Actually, maybe we didn't even say this, but it's worth saying now. I have no idea what I said when we were in chapter two. It's so long ago now. But um, go back and listen or review online. The, uh, who, who saves the best wine for last? No one does, right? Remember that? Right? Uh, unless, maybe what's going on there is now there's a new bridegroom who's the bridegroom of, of everyone at the wedding. So he... The reason why there's new wine in, in, those money, in those jars and it's the best wine is that now we're seeing that the culmination of what all marriages were meant to point to, which is the marriage of Christ to his church. So it's almost as if we just had a marriage and now we have an, a new bridegroom here you know, with new wine, with the best wine. So maybe that's why they, again, they didn't understand what he was talking about or why, why this wine showed up at the last minute. Uh, or in desperation. But that's exactly who Jesus is. Because uh, the bridegroom is the one responsible for the wine. Remember that in the story? Yeah, there's the steward who's the one who's responsible for distributing it. But it's actually the bridegroom who's the one responsible for outfitting the feast. That's not our tradition, right? Where the bride's parents pay for the wedding, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Does that still happen? You think so? Okay. We didn't do that. You're see bride's family that covers the meal and the groom's family covers the beverages. Yeah. Is that how it works? Both mm-hmm. well, of our parents uh, had no ability to pay for anything. So, <laughs> so uh, um, Anne's aunt actually paid for it. But anyway, it was her church, though. That's the, the tradition. Her church hosts it, right? The bride's church, usually. All right. Um, consider all the Old Testament stories with the idea of marriage associated with a well. 
um, not just Jacob's well, but Abraham meets Rebecca. The servant Abraham meets Rebecca, and then they meet again at the well uh, with the wife of Isaac. Who brought that up? You okay? Jacob meets Rachel, remember? And there's also the other woman. <laughs> Two wives. Uh, but later on, Moses meets Zipporah by the well. Zipporah is Moses' wife. So I, I would argue that the evangelist tells us this is Jacob's well, indicating what kind of story this is going to be. It's not just a, wa- a story about water. It's a story about marriage. And again, not, not, uh, not an earthly marriage, um, but, but the, the marriage that ends all marriage, or is the fulfillment, I should say end. That sounds negative, but uh, is the fulfillment of all marriages, the culmination of all of our marriages, is the marriage of Christ to his church. Um, she says, I have no husband. Is that actually true? Mm, right then, maybe. <laughs> but historically, no. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you, or you have well said, said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. Now, some commentators would say, well, she's living with somebody else outside of marriage. She's had five husbands, all divorced, and now she's with a sixth who's, they're not even married. I'm like, okay, I guess you could read it that way. But if, if it's true what we said, that he's the bridegroom, which is what John has set us up for, then who's the husband who she does not yet have? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, it's right before her. Right? Um, as far as the five goes... Um, there was an ethic, it's in, the, it's in the Mishnah, it's in the Jewish rabbinical writings, that uh, you could marry twice, maybe three times, but that was like it. After three marriages, you're done, right? And you're probably done physically anyway as far as childbearing, but yeah, that's it. And then um, you have to live with your son or one of your sons or something. Um, although that's not in the Bible or in the scriptures. Uh, and she is living now with a man who is not her husband. He knows, right? Now... There was something I was going to mention here. I didn't put on the notes. Um, But there's actually a pretty strong allegory possible here. Where did I put that? I think I put it on the sheet, actually. Oh, it's in the next block. I put it in the wrong paragraph. Uh, About, if you look at the bottom of, or the end of the paragraph, I perceive that you're a prophet. The five husbands could be a reference to the five heathen nations who with their gods had been displaced and settled in Samaria, as recorded in 2 Kings 17. So Samaria had had this turnover of, of kings. Um, I can't remember all their names. Do you remember? It's, it happens rapid fire in 2 Kings 17. Um, there's, there's Ahaz, king of Judah. Hosea become Ella. Okay, Hosea, the son of Ella, became king of Israel. He reigned nine years, then did evil in the sight of the Lord but not as the kings of Israel before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him. Hosea became a vassal, paid him tribute money. The king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers. And then the king of Assyria went through the land, went up to Samaria, besieged it three years. In the ninth year, the king of Assyria took uh, Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria, and he placed Hala, and by the Habor, the river of Gosen, and in the cities of Medes. And then there's Hala, and then there's other... and it. It's just back and forth. Then they did evil in the Lord's sight, or then the king of Assyria sent another guy. And so, and there's five of them if you number them out. And that seems like, wow, that's a really like obscure reference if it's true, right? You've had five husbands. Um, here's the problem, though. She gets it. Okay, it seems obscure to us. And you, again, take your time, read through 2 Kings 17 on your own. But she gets it. And how do we know that? Because she quickly shifts from this husband language to your prophet. All right. Now, it could be just simple, bare reading. He, he can perceive into her past. Right? He sees that she's had five husbands. Right? But what is the job of the prophet? Just to tell you. Is he like a, like a person with a magic, you know, what do they call it? A crystal ball? Right? Oh, I perceive it. Um, and then they just tell vague generalities. That, and they watch your body language to tell if, if, if they're hitting on something that's true. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's actually a trick. They, can't, they, can't, they don't know your past. Or, actually, today they do because they just use the internet. 
So they, they scope you out before you come. Oh, anyway. <laughs> but people like to fall for that kind of stuff. No, what's the prophet's job? What, is the, what, what do the prophets do? Bring God's word. Bring God's word, namely, in, in terms of Samaria, to point um, to their sin, to their idolatry, uh, and then to the place of forgiveness. All right? So they would, you know, so this is what they did. They say, repent and be, like John the Baptist is the last prophet. Repent and be baptized. That's where forgiveness of sins is located for you. All right? The Old Testament prophets says, restore the worship of Israel. Hear the Torah. Make the sacrifices. Keep the feasts. Because that's where forgiveness is located for you. Okay? That's what the prophets did. Is return to the Lord. For he is gracious and merciful and long-suffering and forgiving the iniquity of the, um, of, of the children. Okay? And she perceives that he's doing the same thing, pointing out her sin, um, but also where is forgiveness? And what do living waters do? They cleanse of sin. That's what waters do. They're cleansing. They're also destructive too, by the way. All right. I perceive you're a prophet. And then she moves to worship. Like, what just happened? We were talking about husbands. Now you're talking about prophets and worship. Just like that. See what I'm talking about? Yeah, why does she make that shift? Because she's, it's clicking for her. She's, she's making all the connections that Jesus is making here. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim. I think it's the one she, or is it Gozan, as it was called? Which mountain? What mountain did they worship on? We talked about this last week and I couldn't remember. This is the mount, they, they believe, by the way, this mountain that they're talking about, they believe this is the mountain that, of Moriah. Where, yeah, it was Gerizim. There was an argument the Samaritans said that uh, Abraham was taken to Gerizim to sacrifice Isaac, and the Jews said that he was taken to actually Jerusalem, Sinai. No, not Sinai. They said Moriah was at Sinai, and the Samaritans said it was up north. That we don't actually know, but there was that's a religious argument. Where is the place of worship? Well, it makes sense because you know you don't. You want to keep your people home for worship. You don't want them going to Judah. They might just stay down there. You know, we don't mass exodus. So, a place of worship is really important, and it's this. I it it's uh, the mountain. They, she thinks it's the mountain where. Yeah, Gerizim. That's right. Um, that actually Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac. You Jews say that it is in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. All right? Now, I mean, this is a legitimate question. It's always a legitimate question. Where do we go to worship God? Or how do we worship God? Or what is the right worship of God? It seems to be that's the only thing that we argue about. Or maybe we argue about a couple of things. Uh, How did one professor say it? Wine, worship, and song, I think, were the three. This is a constant argument. So, no, 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 excuse me, not wine. Women worship in song. Wine, wine worship in women? I don't know. Wine, women, and song. All right, there we go. I knew we had two of them twice. Yeah, song. So, like, how do we worship? What, what kind of music is permitted in the church or something like that? Or can we have a band or not or something like that, which is a pedantic argument. And it's, it's actually immaterial um, to, to the faith. It's it, directly anyway. It's tangential. Um, I've heard wonderful worship with, uh, with acoustic instruments, for example, not an organ. It's perfectly possible. Um, faithful worship, yeah. Uh, let's see, so uh, women. So what's the role of women in the church? That's always an argument we're always making. Um, and actually, the New Testament makes the same argument. Jesus undermines some of the expectation because who are the first people he shows himself to in the resurrection? To the apostles? Those guys? No, to the women. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Women can testify to the truth. They can speak God's word. Um, especially in that day, that's pretty undermining. Not so much for us. There's Cassie. She teaches in the school. No problem. <laughs> right. Uh, and what was the other one? Oh, worship. That's the big one. Song? Oh, we talked about that. Wine. Mm, drinking. I don't know. We, always, we don't argue so much about that. Um, but the Protestants do. All right. 
So the prophet's job is to point to the place of forgiveness, hence her question about the place of worship. The central role of the prophet is the condemnation of false worship, of idolatry. And here's where it gets interesting, which the prophets depicted as adultery. And I gave you a couple examples there. Boy, if we had more time to read Ezekiel's chapter 16 and Ezekiel chapter 23, um, those two are big. But, but chapter 23 especially, the older sister is Samaria and the younger sister is Jerusalem. And guess what, he, guess what uh, Ezekiel says about both of them? They both play the harlot. The second one's worse. The second one, the younger sister is worse? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Judgment against Jerusalem, judgment against... Uh, yeah, it's pretty powerful language. Hosea, the whole book. I mean, that is the story of the book of Hosea, which is why you never hear it in church because, you know, then we'd have to explain to kids, you know, here's what the sixth commandment's all about. Like, which actually, actually we have to do anyway, right? <laughs> Teach God's law. Um, but yeah, the idea of being unfaithful to your bridegroom and that the church is the bride, that's, this is not new to Jesus. This is a, this, and I gave you those. Those are the most profound examples, but Isaiah does it too. Um, so you'll see it all over the place. That to go after a false god is, or after idolatrous worship, and to worship creatures rather than the creator is precisely breaking a marriage covenant with God. And she goes there. She gets it. Yeah. So we don't believe these accounts are fiction. Um, Confused is to, to to make reference to well, how was John setting it up, or why did he mm. set it at this place? When it seems the most straightforward explanation is he says that it would happen at this well because it actually happened at this well. Yeah, I'm not it's, denying it's that. It's not like a story that he made up and mm. he said, "Well, I'm going to use this imagery for effect," and then mm. people can connect the dots, which seems to me a confusion of genre that. Mm. So, historical account versus a prophetic account or an mm. allegorical account. I, I, that's why I tried not to use, I said it once and I shouldn't have, allegory, because I don't think it's allegory. I think yeah. it's historic event intentionally happening at a particular place to teach a greater, even a greater truth for all. That you may believe how in Jesus it, how Christ. How do you know that, though? Huh. I, mean, how, I mean, the thing is that. It may be that that's the case, mm. but it also may be that it's not the case. That it's immaterial. But we don't have any way of testing that, that thesis, I guess. Well, maybe. I mean, I asserted this back in our introduction stuff in January, I think it was, when we started the book. I missed. Yeah, I know. Well, you can go back and listen. I did record it. You can go back and listen to it if you want, um, or read the notes. But, um, I mean, John's thesis statement, I mean, his, he gives us a purpose in his writing, Correct. right? Which which I'm applying universally to the whole book, uh-huh. that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that maybe it's, it seems artificial, uh, maybe it's a little bit overreaching to, to suggest that there's, that there's so many layers of meaning to what, what reads like a, a historic narrative alone, right? You, and you could read it that way and still, I think, still receive Jesus as your savior. Yeah, that she re- he redeems her, yeah. you know, taking her away from her other husbands. And, and actually, she may be among, among the band of, you know, may join him, uh, his apostolic band, the, the whole group of those who follow after him and be present with him at the feeding of 5,000, for example, later on. Um, I mean, she certainly goes and testifies to the other Samaritans who come and ask him questions later on, which we'll get to. So, yeah, I'm not denying the, the bare, simple reading. That's just water, and he's talking about... But he is talking about a greater reality. I don't, I don't think that's too much of a stretch uh, of well, a point to make. Well, asking her about her husband, mm. and then actually providing information to her mm-hmm. that as far as she's concerned, he would have no access to. Unless you were a prophet. He's actually establishing his authority Mm -hmm. as being something supernatural. Yeah. Um, Right, and I'm not denying that. I mean, because when he said that to her, she was probably taken aback. Because here's here's a guy that I've never met before. I haven't even seen him around here before. You kind of wish that the text had between 18 and 19. 
pause. Yeah. Jaw drop. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was probably kind of floored about it. And, it, and it, it's not only that he's disclosing it has information about her life, but it's probably information about her life that's, that's shameful to her. Right. You know. Right. Because she feels this is a painful aspect of my life. Um, yeah. No, and I'm not denying any of that. Yeah. Um, I mean. I mean, she literally did have five husbands, and. You know, whether that number five corresponds to something else in scripture. Right. To me, it's almost, it seems like a stretch because it's not symbolic. I mean, she literally did have five husbands. And I don't think. That's, that's the clear meaning, or that's the bare reading of the text, right? We don't right? question that it was actually five, right? Many people do. But we would not. Would we? I don't think so, no. Yeah. I mean, I there's no need to. I mean, that, that's where it really comes down to. There's just no need to go there. Um, that doesn't mean that it also is, that Jesus, Jesus isn't... This is not fiction. I mean, this no. is, this, when Jesus said you've had five wives, he spoke true. Right. That she really had had five wives. And we believe this is inspired, that this mm-hmm. is actually an accurate account. Yeah. It wasn't made up by John. Jesus really said it. Right. So we know she, she did really have five wives, or husbands. And I keep saying that wrong. But yeah, I would get it. Yeah, so... The, um, no, this is this is good. Yeah, no, this is good. This is a helpful corrective um, that we can talk about. You know how Jesus uses this to bring her to a greater understanding of who He is. Yeah. Um, uses her own life experience that way, and and so we can yeah we can have a lot of talk that's all spiritual and not actual and, and inadvertently deny the physical actual you know events. Yeah. Right. So we've got to be careful about that. You know, John was baptizing in the Jordan. Jesus was baptizing. We talked about that last week. That's not like... Because we're not liberal theologians. But this is, I mean, I think this is what liberal theologians will do. Not just liberal, but medieval, too. Yeah, and so... But Luther wouldn't do this, I don't believe. Well, Luther... Okay, so let's talk about that. Because art of interpretation... I mean, we don't have to get through all the lessons today. That's fine. The art of the interpretation is very important. Uh, we call... It used to be called... Um, well, it's called. I mean, exegesis is interpreting the Bible. What's the whole broad genre? We don't even teach. Isagogics belongs to that too, which is like context and word use and that kind of stuff. Hermeneutics is the broad category. Thank you. Yeah, which we might call just the art of interpretation. Um, and Luther, he, he does he does make a shift. What he received was that there was a fourfold sense to everything in Scripture. This is what he was taught. So that every text, I'm hoping not, you're, you're going to stretch my memory here, but there's, there is allegorical. So it's a story about something else. So uh, object lesson, if you like, right. of a higher truth. Not, and it doesn't even matter if it happened. There's uh, tropological, I think. It's tropological, or maybe it's topological. I can't remember if there's an R in there or not. Which, good luck if you remember that. There's literal. And then, what's the other one? I'm going to have to ask Google. I can't remember. <laughs> Anybody remember? You've heard, you had to have heard this before. Is it prophetic? Yeah, maybe. The fourfold interpretation of Scripture, according to the, the, the highly... Oh, Catholicism.org um, says that this is still binding for Catholics, so, by the way. So it's still a modern interpretation. Eventually it's going to load. Thank you. Yes, thank, thank you, Saint. Oh, yeah. Literal? Oh, and analogical. Analogical. So an analogy, which is different than an allegory, right? And I kind of conflated those when we were talking. These are spiritual. And then and then this is the what do you want to say? Physical, actual, something like that. So and, and they wouldn't deny this either, the medieval sense. But the emphasis in, in their interpretation is always the, the spiritual use. And you even read this actually in Luther's preaching too. So he doesn't exactly throw it out. Uh, what is tropological? Oh, yeah, it is tropological. We would call this moral. So the moral teaching. So like Aesop's fable, right? So if we read it, we read it as an, an analogy about something else. An allegory, so it's a, it's kind of like a parable, right? It's a, it's yeah. a story that has, what do you want to say? 
just an object. It's a, it's a lesson. It's not actually, this is a lesson, moral lesson. They all kind of have a similar spiritual goal. Yeah. That's the problem. This is more moral. This is probably more like faith. Mm-hmm. What's that? Yeah, deeper meaning. Right. Um, and then, So we've inherited this in a sense. And Luther doesn't throw it out, although he, his point was this is the that's where you want to sit always predominantly. It's just what's the bare reading of the text. And, and that's because he would argue for what's called the perpiscuity of Scripture. That's another hard word to kind of... The clarity of Scripture. That's a better word. Clarity. That's clear. That we can understand it. And so, yeah, that's the challenge with like my doing... Saying that maybe there's a little bit of allegory going on there. Or at least there's, there's this... Analogical. I don't actually go to tropological that often. I don't think he's just like, oh, he's telling this story because it means you should be faithful to your husband. And he's pointing that out to her, you know, by connecting her to this well. So, yeah, maybe it's too much to suggest that John is trying to... It's something to think about. I mean, certainly I think if somebody came in off the street, yeah. you would kind of have an initiation to it. Yeah. Some of the ways in which you speak might give the impression that this account was calculated by John mm-hmm. to be allegorical or to, to be more of a to convey some information that's actually not in the history of the text that the text is recalling. I actually did make that argument though. And the details aren't all that the details may or may not be true. Yeah, I made the argument that this is preaching. That it, it's preaching history, but he's recalling... We, we had to deal with this with the um, particular with the casting out of the money changers, the cleansing of the temple, because John records it back in chapter 2. And every, the other three have it during Holy Week. Holy Week, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that actually is maybe a, um, an indication... Not that John is twisting history to his own purpose. I think that's the danger. I mean, he's inspired by God. This was inspired scripture, and actually widely, almost universally accepted by the church as being faithful, um, a faithful text of the apostle. So um, is he being unfaithful with history and telling history? Part of the challenge here, which is, it's a rabbit trail that we probably don't want to go down since we're over time, um, is that our understanding of history and in the ancient world history is very different. They viewed history more like what we would call storytelling. Um, And they don't have any problem with saying it it actually happened. It's actually not as important whether it happened right then, at that precise moment in time, or if if you just tell the story in a way that that the narrative makes sense. Um, I I think because of John's repeated use of purpose statements throughout the text, we saw it in chapter 1, we saw it in chapter 2, and chapter 3, and then it's clear at the end, in chapter 19, that these things are written, and chapter 20, um, that repeatedly John's telling us, I'm, I'm telling you this story for this purpose, for your faith. Not just because it happened, but that you believe. So I think John himself tells us to, to understand the text in both ways. Which, like, you're right, if you're uninitiated, you're like, Oh, are you denying that it actually happened? No, of course not. Same way that I don't deny that creation happened, even though I think the principal purpose of the creation story is to teach you um, about the, worship, the life of worship, actually. It's a liturgical text. It's teaching us about the ordering of our days and our weeks around God's word and worship of God, receiving his gifts in, in, in worship. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. But, but I, could, I can certainly understand that people would say, well, no, you know, you're denying that it actually happened. It's not given to you as a science textbook. That's not or a history textbook. That's not the reason why you record it. That's my argument. You don't have to agree with it. It's maybe a little bit of interpretation. That's certainly how Israel understood it uh, when the Sabbath was given in Exodus. Yeah, I mean, I guess they, yeah, because that's what Moses does. We need to be careful that we're not trying to be mind readers of God. That, that, oh yeah. That, that because the inspired words He gave us are the words of the text and where we start extrapolating on them and so forth we're actually delving into the realm that God has revealed to hmm. us uh, I mean I can see it I'm also trying to argue for you it's more than just history 
So, so we have to, we're trying to balance, you know, it's a dichotomy, right? We don't want to deny that it's history, but we also don't want to say it's only history, you know, because John doesn't. And uh, given the context, I, I think the text is just, maybe it's just me, but I, I like to approach the text as being um, potentially richer than I think it is on first reading, that there's more there than what I read, than what, what's obvious. Um, and like I said, it's, for me, it's the only way to actually understand what's going on here, how she moves so quickly from water to husband to worship and idolatry. It's like, otherwise, I'm, I, I can't really make sense of it. <laughs> Like, what connections are she making? So I'm searching scripture to find those connections that she's making, but that aren't explicit in the text. It might, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think we, it, it, at least when I read these things, there's sometimes where I just have to let it go. And, you know, <laughs> that's that realize too. That, you know, God hasn't, I'd like to know more details in this text, but God hasn't provided it. And right. you know what, I'm okay with that. It's the fact that the details aren't there probably tells me God didn't think it was important that I knew that Unless you go read Ezekiel 16, 23, Hosea, Jeremiah, which maybe that's what we should do next week. I'll try to make the case next week, but you won't be here. But that's I won't okay. be here. But yeah, you've got the references here, though, so look at them on your own okay. in that paragraph. Okay. All right, depart in the Lord's peace. See you in church. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.